If you all want to go ahead and begin turning in your Bibles to John chapter 18, we are continuing our way through the book of John. We are in John chapter 18 this morning. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you hit Acts, you've gone too far. John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 28. We're going to read a rather lengthy portion. Uh, we're in the part of the narrative now where we're getting to Jesus' trial uh, before Pilate. And so we're going to read through this, uh, this passage, and then I'll pray, and then we will jump in this morning. So John chapter 18, I'm going to start in verse 28, and I'm going to read through chapter 19, verse 16. Here is the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do I, did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to, him, to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we study your word. I pray that you would teach us, Holy Spirit. Open, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear your word this morning, God. Apart from you, we can do nothing, not even properly understand and apply your word to our lives. God, I need your help this morning as I preach. Please be with me, God, and use me in my weakness. Lord, I have, there's nothing I can do to change anyone's heart or change anyone's life in here, God. It's only by the power of your word that your saints can be built up and that sinners can be converted to you, that people can be transferred from darkness to light, that the eyes of the blind can be opened. God, I pray that for those that don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would see and be convinced this morning that Jesus, you are the King of Kings who was rejected by the chief priests and Pontius Pilate, put to death according to the definite plan of God to take the punishment for the sins of all who will believe. God, may you convince every single person here in this room of that reality and of that fact. God, may every single person in here this morning confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. May every knee bow and every tongue confess, Jesus, that you're Lord today so that they don't have to do it when it's too late on Judgment Day. God, please be with us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, real quick, would somebody mind closing those double doors back there for me just so that we're, thank you guys. All right, so um, I was uh, was watching a documentary not too long ago uh, about uh, somebody who was falsely accused of a crime. And uh, they talked about this, uh, this organization, maybe some of you have heard it, called the Innocence Project. And basically, they work to overturn wrongful convictions, and they, they use DNA testing so that innocent people who've been convicted of crimes they didn't commit can be set free. Uh, and since 1992, they've actually helped uh, set free 192 clients who were wrongfully convicted and put in prison uh, to gain their freedom through this DNA testing. And uh, over 10% of those people were on death row. Uh, and they were wrongfully convicted of a crime and set free. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about this passage, I, it, it, it just struck me that it's hard to imagine a greater injustice, you know, than, than being wrongfully accused of a crime. Like, that would be horrible, right? It'd be horrible to be wrongfully accused of a crime. And the passage that we just read unfolds the greatest injustice ever done. It's the wrongful conviction and execution of the perfect sinless son of God. No greater injustice than this one here. But this wrongful conviction was not an accident. Though it appeared so, 
At first, it was not a tragedy. The most unjust unjust act in history is what made a way for God to pardon the guilty. I want to give you some background and some setting for what we just read to catch us up. So, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas and arrested by the chief priests and the officers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was taken before the high priest and he was questioned and they charged him with blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. And they wanted to put Jesus to death but the, because the punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament was death. The problem was is because the Jewish people were under Roman occupation, they didn't have authority to execute capital punishment. And so they, if they wanted to put Jesus to death, they needed to get Pilate to put him to death. They needed to convince the Roman authorities that Jesus had done something that was worthy of being put to death. And so that's why they brought Jesus to Pilate to ask Pilate to put him to death. And it was at this point that Pilate took Jesus into his headquarters to question him. And there are there's three things that I want to point out that are highlighted in Jesus's trial before Pilate this morning. Okay, the three things are this. I want to I want to show you the innocence of Jesus, the guilt of the religious and the non-religious, and the sovereignty of God. Both all three of those things are woven throughout this passage and are just permeating this passage that we just read. So the innocence of Jesus, the guilt of the religious and the non-religious, and the sovereignty of God. We see all three of those things all over this passage. So let's just take those one at a time. Let's talk about the innocence of Jesus. So what's clear in this passage is that no credible charges could be brought against Jesus. Multiple times we hear Pilate himself say, I find no guilt in him. Did y'all hear that over and over again? Just as a side note, whenever you're reading the Bible and you hear things repeated like that over and over again, that should get your attention and go, okay, this is pointing me towards one of the main points of what this passage is trying to teach, okay? Those are the things you should highlight when you're reading through Scripture. If you see things repeated or emphasized like that. So over and over again, we see, I find no guilt in him. You know, and like even the chief priests, the ones that wanted to put him to death, admitted that the only reason Jesus deserved to die was that he claimed to be the Son of God. But they twisted that to their advantage to make it sound like Jesus wanted to rise up as a threat to Roman rule. They knew that that was the only way to get Pilate to take the charges seriously, was to make it seem like Jesus was a threat to Rome, and then maybe Pilate will take these charges seriously. But Jesus made it clear in his interaction with Pilate that this wasn't the case, right? He said in verse 36, he says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. He's like, do you see my servants coming and trying to start an uprising here? We're not, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm not really interested in your puny little kingdom, Pilate. Jesus had not come to lead an insurrection or to start a rebellion against Caesar. That's not how his kingdom would be established. You see, Jesus is the everlasting king of an eternal kingdom, not like the perishable kingdoms of this world that are here today, gone tomorrow. So in response to what Jesus said, in verse 37, Pilate asks, he says, so so you are a king then? You're a king? And Jesus replies in verse 38, and I'm going to paraphrase here, he basically says, you're right in saying that I'm a king, but not in the way that you think. My purpose is not to start a political kingdom, but to bear witness to the truth. That's how my kingdom comes, by bearing witness to the truth. 
So ironically, and by the way, there's a ton of irony all throughout this passage. Ironically, the only thing that Jesus was guilty of was telling the truth about himself. That he's the son of God, the king of Israel. Now, what's the, what is the nature, though, of Jesus' kingship and his kingdom? Like, what does he mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? Well, when David in the Old Testament was anointed king by Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made clear to David that a greater eternal king would come from his line, a messianic king. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, we read this. Uh, the Lord says through the prophet Samuel to David, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 45 also speaks of the coming Messiah who would be king. In verses 6 and 7 it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the chief priests and Pilate all misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingship and his kingdom. While they squabbled over temporary perishable kingdoms, Jesus was in the midst of establishing his eternal kingdom that supersedes all earthly kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom is everlasting and its dominion has no limit. It becomes clear after verse 37 that Pilate was convinced that Jesus wasn't a threat to him or to leading an uprising against Rome. And he even, in verse 38, he kind of he scoffed at the notion of truth. What is truth? He, it's like he basically considered Jesus harmless. And so three times he says, I find no guilt in him. He, he says, I find no guilt in him in 1838 and chapter 19, verse 4 and verse 6. Over and over, the only charge the chief priest could bring was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And that's what he was condemned for, for bearing witness to the truth. But you see, it was actually Jesus' condemnation that led to his victory. It was his death that led to his resurrection. It was his humiliation that led to his exaltation. That's what Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 means when it says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted because he was humiliated. Jesus came to establish his reign not by leading an uprising, but by being lifted up on a cross. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and the devil. He bore the sins of all who trust in him. He himself bore his sins in his bore our sin in his body on the tree. And by doing so, he removed the teeth of Satan's accusations. And he soundly defeated death on the third day. And he's coming back again to make all things new and to put all things into subjection under his feet. Now it may not appear that Jesus is on the throne right now. When we look at the world around us, just like Pilate and the chief priests thought, but the kingdom of God is advancing. You know, Pilate thought it was amusing that Jesus said he's a king. Ha, oh, you're a king, are you? Okay. The chief priests and the scribes were angry 
you're not our king, right? Today it's the same. People scoff. People think it's ridiculous. Doesn't look like Jesus is on the throne to me. But He is. Because, you see, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like leaven in a lump of dough. Or it's like, it's like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's taken root and it's fully grown, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. When the leaven has worked its way through the dough, you might not see it working at first, but when it's worked its way completely, the dough rises and it takes its full effect. The kingdom of God appears small and insignificant now, but it is growing and it will supersede all other kingdoms. You see, upon Jesus' return, the sky will crack, the trumpet will sound, and all will see and will know that Jesus is the King of kings. His kingdom will be visible and every single person will drop immediately to their knees. And people who have opposed Him, who have rejected Him, who have refused His reign, they will call out for the rocks to fall upon Him to try to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. But those who have trusted in Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, all we have to look forward to is everlasting life, where He will lavish His grace upon us for all of eternity. He will make all things new. Jesus is coming back to restore creation, to undo the the effects of sin. He will raise us to everlasting life, where we'll have new, resurrected, glorified bodies, and we will reign with Him forever. That is the future that we have to look forward to. That's why Jesus came, to bear witness to the truth. And church, we too are called to bear witness to the truth, to follow Jesus' example, to, to give the good testimony just like Jesus did before Pontius Pilate right here. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's how His kingdom is advanced. It's how subjects are added to His kingdom. Not by force, but by bearing witness to the truth. It's the mission of the church to follow Jesus' example in doing so. So we bear witness to the truth by proclaiming the truth about who Jesus is, about proclaiming the truth about the world's sin, and, and, and proclaiming the truth about the coming judgment. And as we do, Jesus says here in in chapter 18, He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, people who are on the side of truth will listen to me and they'll believe. And as a result, they'll be born again. And Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that's how you enter this kingdom. You believe and you're born again. There's no other way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. If you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus truly is the King of Kings, are you bearing witness to this reality to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors? If not, why not? Sit on that question for a second. Why am I not bearing witness? I don't mean telling people you're a Christian or them knowing you go to a Bible study or go to church or they saw your Bible on your nightstand. No, I mean proclaiming the gospel. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ died to pay the punishment for our sin in our place, rose from the dead on the third day, and all who repent of their sin and trust in Him alone for salvation will receive eternal eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Are you bearing witness to that? 
And it's not just friends and family that we need to bear witness about the gospel to. Jesus calls us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus' kingdom knows no bounds. It's not confined to a geographical area. It's not confined to a particular tribe or tongue or language. Jesus lays claim over all peoples. He's the king of every person, every nation, every tribe, every single square inch of this planet, every single square inch of the heavens and the earth belong to him. And he means to save people from every single tribe and tongue and nation, which means witnesses need to go to bear witness to the truth about him in these places. Just take for one example, Pakistan. 6.8% of the world's unreached population lives in Pakistan. We describe, we define unreached as people who have no access to the gospel. People groups where there are no known churches and no known Christians working to bring the gospel to these peoples. There are over 3 billion of them in the world. 6.8% of that is in the country of Pakistan. There are entire people groups with zero access to the gospel in Pakistan. No churches, no Christians. For example, just a couple of those peoples are the Jat. There's 33 million Jat who have never heard how they can go to heaven. 33 million in one country. Nobody is reaching them as far as we know. Or the Rajput people. 16.7 million people have never heard the good news. We could go on and on. Did you know that there are 504 unreached people groups in Pakistan alone? 504 entire people groups who, as far as we know, there's never been a person in the history of those people to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. There's an estimated 4,578 gospel workers needed to go to these people groups in Pakistan alone. And I'm not just saying this because I want to put a guilt trip on us. I'm saying this because we need. this is our mission as the church. This is what we're called to do. And so I'm not just going to say, okay, this is what you're called to do. Now go and figure it out. We're going to give you pathways and on-ramps. There are ways you can get involved. If you know that God is calling you or that you sense that God may be calling you to be a part of this, to go to the nations, we're going to help you do that. There's a couple of ways that you can get involved. This fall, we're, starting up, we're going to be starting our first church planting residency. For those who are interested in planting churches, primarily in North America, but even beyond, we want to train and equip you. And where it's going to be starting in September, it's going to be highly intensive and it's going to take a lot of sacrifice. But if that's something you're even remotely interested in, I want you to come and talk to me. We're starting on September 12th. Right now I've got three guys already who said they want to be a part and we want to have more. Amen. Not only that, for those of you who may be considering wanting to go and do cross-cultural missions, perhaps you're considering uh, going cross-culturally to unreached peoples, uh, to different language groups. We're going to be starting a, um, a cross-cultural uh, cohort, cross-cultural missions cohort, also in September. So if that's something that you're interested in, and learning what it looks like to go and to make disciples amongst people who speak different languages, who come from different ethnic backgrounds, we want to help get you ready for that. We've got on-ramps, and that's starting in September as well. Come and talk to me about that. It's open to men and to women. It's, so there's no excuses to just keep sitting in our pews. We've got on-ramps. We've got clear next steps. And there's no excuses to keep sitting in our pews. We've got on-ramps. Now, here's the deal. Is every single person called to plant a church? No. 
Is every single person called to go be a missionary in a foreign country? No. But is every single person called to be a part of the Great Commission, to be a a part of bearing witness to the gospel among all the peoples of the earth? Yes, we are. So we were just watching, we were, we had secret church on Friday night and Pastor David was Platt was talking about how everyone is either a sender or a goer, okay? There's no people, there's no like sitting on the sidelines of this Great Commission. So if we're not going, we ought to be actively sending, which means we need to be actively praying for these unreached people groups. Download the Unreached People of the Day app from the Joshua Project on your phone and they'll send you a push notification at the time of your choosing every day to pray for an unreached people group. Pray that God will raise up laborers to go into the harvest. Jesus tells us to do that in Luke 10 too. The, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. We also need to give generously to the work of missions. We can't send missionaries if we don't have the funding to do it. We can't start these works out there and we can't reach these people if we don't have the means to be able to get to them. So give generously to the local church. Because we've got a missions budget, and we've got a big missions budget, and we want to keep building it bigger and bigger and bigger so that we can support more and more missionaries, like Logan and Carla Douglas, our missionaries in Iceland, who are planting literally the second Baptist church in the entire country right now. There's one Baptist church in the entire country. They're planting the second one. There's a huge need. Another exciting development, and you guys are going to hear about this soon, but there's another couple named Logan and Emily. We're not just picking Logan's. Um, it just happened, I don't know. But there's another couple named Logan and Emily who are going to be going to an undisclosed location in Southeast Asia, and they're going to be reaching an unreached people group who has literally never, ever had any missionaries go to these people before, and they have no scriptures in their language. And we're going to be supporting them as a church financially and through prayer and other means. So as we can do that, the only reason we're able to do that is as you guys give generously to the church. That's why we're able to support Logan and Carla and Logan and Emily and the multiple other works that we're supporting. So give. Look at your budget. Where, look at your bank account. If we were to just look at your bank account alone, what would it tell us your priorities are? Is your priority the Great Commission? Could we tell that by looking at where your spending is going? But where your dollars are going? Now, there are implications for those of you who do not believe that Jesus is king as well. The truth is being witnessed to this morning. Jesus is king. Jesus is my king, and even if you don't realize it, Jesus is your king too. The question is not whether he's your king, but whether you'll submit to him as your king. He is your king. Clearly, there are many who don't submit to Jesus. Pilate and the chief priests are first among them. Both the religious and the non-religious here in John 18 were guilty and complicit in the rejection of Jesus as as king. This is our second point in the outline, the guilt of the religious and the non-religious, by the way. See, Pilate found Jesus' claim to be king as amusing and kind of harmless and even funny. He, He had some fun with it even. He dressed Jesus up in a purple robe and put a crown of thorns on his head and had a good laugh about it. He just kind of dismissed it, like, yeah, this is irrelevant. This is just some crazy philosophizer. I don't have time for this. The chief priests, on the other hand, found it offensive and threatening and enraging. Both of them misunderstood Jesus. Both of them rejected Jesus. You see, after 
After cross-examining Jesus, Pilate seemed to dismiss him as a harmless philosopher. He, he mocked the idea of truth. He said, what is truth? He even put a sign above Jesus' cross that read, the King of the Jews. To Pilate, it was a joke, but it was truer than he could have known. You see, Pilate, just like the chief priests, was consumed with keeping his worldly little kingdom intact. And that meant staying on Caesar's good side, even if it meant killing an innocent man. So many respond to Jesus like Pilate. They're apathetic to Jesus' claim to be the king. They're not necessarily hostile to Jesus. They just consider his, his teachings, his claims irrelevant to their lives. Many people even admire Jesus as a good teacher, but they scoff at the notion that Jesus is their king whom they must obey. When it comes to that, they're like, no, 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 come on. I'm not going to obey. He's not my king. Good teacher. I like some of his teachings. I'll apply some of them. I'll pick and choose what I like, what I don't. Why is this? Because to acknowledge Jesus as king means to admit that you are not. To acknowledge Jesus as king means to admit that you are not. And that's sin in a nutshell, is it not? It's putting self on the throne. You see, it's convenient, awfully convenient, for the pilots of the world to scoff at truth because if you're ignorant of the truth, you think you're not accountable to it. But that's a lie. It's a deception. We are all called to account to what we do with Jesus. Pilate tried to wash his hands of Jesus' blood, but he could not. He was complicit in his apathy, and it has gone down in history as we read in the Apostles' Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. But while Pilate was having a good laugh, the chief priests were not amused. Jesus' claim to be king was threatening to them. It made them furious with rage. You see, in a way, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. So they actively opposed Jesus. They demanded his death. What's so ironic about, this, uh, about the, the beginning of this story is that they were careful not to enter Pilate's headquarters so that they wouldn't defile themselves before the Passover as they crucified their own Messiah. How could they be so blind? How could they not recognize that Jesus was fulfilling all the prophecies of the coming Messiah? How could they not recognize that in their very rejection of Him, they were fulfilling His Word? They were blinded by their sin. That's why. They suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. You see, they had a good thing going. They didn't want anyone challenging them for control over Israel. Jesus was a threat to their reputations, to their control, and to their privileged position. Most supremely, Jesus was a threat to their self-righteousness. See, they considered themselves rule followers, righteous men. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Jesus made it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, both the religious and the non-religious alike. And can I just tell you, religious people do not like being told that they are unrighteous and unable to save themselves. It makes them angry. Many people today respond to Jesus like the chief priests, openly hostile to his claim to the throne of our lives, and they actively oppose him. They insist on depending on their own good works and self-righteousness to get them into heaven. Is that you this morning? 
Are you trusting in your own good works? Do you bristle at the sound that there's nothing you can do to, earn, to get your way into heaven, that you're completely dependent on the grace of God alone, that apart from God's gracious intervening hand, you would be damned to an eternity in hell? Does that make you angry? Because it made the scribes and the Pharisees angry. What I'm praying it does this morning is that it softens you, that you, that you become convicted under it, that you are humbled beneath it, and that you recognize that you don't need to try to save yourself, that you can't save yourself, that you need Jesus, that you need to throw him, yourself completely upon him for salvation alone. This is why, though, the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to salvation draws so much ire, especially among religious people. It's a frontal assault on the idea that there's anything good in ourselves that can merit God's favor. It really is. We're 100% dependent on God's grace. And this open hostility against Jesus today often manifests in the form of persecution against the church, which is the body of Christ. Jesus told the disciples earlier in John 15, 20, he said, if they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. So whether it's open persecution or apathy, the bottom line is that everyone, the religious and the non-religious alike, stand guilty and culpable in Jesus' death. Everyone has rejected Jesus' rightful place as king over their lives. And that is why Jesus died for guilty sinners who have rebelled against his rightful rule and reign over our lives to take the punishment that we deserved for our treason, for our rebellion. And so this morning, both the apathetic and the hostile are graciously invited to come to the throne of grace and to receive mercy this morning. You're invited into his kingdom today, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. I don't know your story, but guess what? God does. And Christ died for us while we were still sinners. You don't have to keep running from him. You don't have to let your sin drive you away in shame. You don't have to try to cover yourself like Adam and Eve did in the garden with those puny leaves that weren't going to actually be able to cover their shame. Jesus will cover your shame by his blood. So where do you stand this morning? Are you trusting in Jesus for your salvation? Are you following him as your king? I should also mention that it does no good to say that Jesus is my king while you live in rebellion to his commands. Okay? That's called hypocrisy. Followers of Jesus are not perfect. We're definitely not perfect. That's why Jesus died for us. But the key difference is that followers of Jesus desire to obey his commands. And so when we sin against him and we disobey his commands, we're convicted and we turn away from that sin. We fight that sin. We ask people to help hold us accountable so we'll turn away from it. We do everything we can, even if that means cutting off our hand, gouging out our eye, whatever it takes to flee from sin. If you say Jesus is my king, but you reject Jesus' commands or you explain them away, then you are communicating that you do not believe that Jesus is a good king worth submitting to, despite what your lips may proclaim. So if that is you, can I just invite you this morning to repent and to come back to Him? The good news is that He's so merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 51, 17 says, God will not reject a broken or contrite heart. There's no conditions on it. If your heart is repentant, if your heart is broken over your sin, if your heart is contrite, He will receive you, no questions asked, period, this morning, right now.
You can come to Him. Any broken or repentant heart. Now, a prideful heart, yeah, you're not going to come to Him because you're going to insist on going your own way. Allow God's Word to break your heart this morning over your sin and to go to Him for mercy. God is so patient with us. So patient. Now, I don't want to leave this text behind without pointing out one of the most obvious but overlooked aspects of these events here. This is the last point, and that's the sovereignty of God that is so pervasive over Jesus' arrest, His trial, and His crucifixion. Jesus was innocent, as we've established. He's the true King of Kings. And Pilate and the chief priests, the religious and the non-religious, were guilty of rejecting Him. But here's the key thing I want you to understand. At no point during any of this did God lose control. Jesus' rejection and crucifixion did not surprise him. It did not surprise the Father. It didn't leave God scrambling for plan B. Everything, including the way that Jesus would die, was predestined according to the definite plan of God. Look again at verse 32 in chapter 18. John writes, after the, the Jews demanded that Pilate put him to death, he said, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Even Jesus' death by crucifixion. Jesus predicted it, and the prophets in the Old Testament foretold it. And when Pilate said to Jesus in chapter 19, Don't you know I have authority to release you or crucify you? Like, Don't you know that I could just let you go? Jesus made it very clear who was in control here in verse 11. He said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, although Pilate and the Jewish authorities were truly guilty and responsible for their actions, at the same time, the sovereign hand of God was behind it all, orchestrating it all, causing it all. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was even born, speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah who would be the suffering servant, he said this in Isaiah 53, 9 and 10. This is, again, 700 years before Jesus comes. Isaiah writes about the Messiah. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is a mystery, this interaction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But it's true, and it's all over the Bible. Let me just give you two reasons real quick why this is so important for us to understand. Why it's so important for us to understand that God orchestrated all this. That God himself orchestrated the most wicked act in the history of the world. The crucifixion of the son of the innocent son of God. God planned that. Here's two reasons that's important. Number one, the sovereignty of God over all things, including something as evil as the crucifixion of the Son of God, is critical for our assurance of salvation. As Christians, we need continual assurance that our sins are truly forgiven, that our debt has really been paid, and that we truly have everlasting life, because we're prone to doubt that. 
We're prone to wonder. Satan, the accuser, accuses the Christians before the throne of God day and night. We're in a spiritual war. Ephesians 6 talks about Satan slinging his fiery darts at us. And the way that we extinguish those fiery darts is by holding up the shield of faith, faith in the shed blood of Christ on the cross on our behalf. Pastor John Piper says this, he says, We need deep and ever-renewed confidence that the crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate was not a random historical fluke of circumstances, but was the outworking of God's pervasive providence. God did not just make lemonades out of lemons. He didn't say, oh no, they're rejecting my Messiah. They're rejecting the Son. What do I do? Plan B, I'll raise them from the dead. No, no, no. This was planned before the foundation of the earth that God would send His Son to die a criminal's death on the cross for sin and be raised from the dead. And God did that because it was the only way that He could demonstrate to the fullest extent the extent of His love for us by sending Christ Himself to die on the cross for guilty sinners. That's why God did this. It's why He planned this. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, to pay the the sin debt of a particular people chosen from before the foundation of the world from among every tribe and tongue and nation. So that means that if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are not destined for wrath, but for everlasting life and eternal joy in the presence of God. And you can know that for certain this morning. Here's the second reason it's important to understand God's sovereignty over all this. If God is sovereign over the sufferings of Jesus, then He is sovereign over the sufferings of His people. If God is sovereign over the sufferings of Jesus, then He is sovereign over the sufferings of His people. Particularly, the sufferings of Christians as we suffer for the sake of Christ. I want to read you Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. One of the most amazing verses to me in the Bible. And this is John uh, writing, and uh, he had a a vision of heaven. And these are, uh, I'm just going to read you Revelation 6, 9 to 11. These are the saints who have been martyred uh, for their testimony about the gospel. And it says this, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Even the number of those who will be martyred for their faith is predestined. God knows who they are. He knows when they will die. He knows how they will die. Everything. God holds every day of every single person on the earth in His hands. Every single breath. You will not live one second longer or one second shorter than God has ordained. God gives breath to every living thing and He takes breath from every living thing. Jesus said, not even a sparrow drops dead from the sky apart from the sovereign will of our Father in heaven. 
This is really good news for those of us who know and love God and believe that He is our good Father who has demonstrated His love for us by sending Christ to die on the cross. That means that until God's work is finished in you, you're immortal. You cannot die until God says you will die. And for us to live as Christ and to die is gain because to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Amen. We can give a hand for that. We can clap for that. Jesus said, not a hair of your head will perish apart from your Father. This should send us out into the world as ambassadors to preach the gospel with utter fearlessness. There shouldn't be a reason we don't go to the most dangerous people groups. There shouldn't be a reason we don't go to the hardest places. There shouldn't be a reason we're scared of Muslims and scared to go share the gospel with them. Because not a hair of our head will perish apart from our Father. Al-Qaeda does not reign. They're not on the throne. Jesus is. May God's sovereignty over the suffering of His Son give us great confidence as His church to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to all peoples in all places. My prayer is that there will be many, many people who will be raised up from within our midst who will go. Who will say, here I am, send me. Who will say, I'll go anywhere, do anything, and give up anything you call me to, Jesus, for the rest of my life. Because guys, can I tell you, this life is a vapor. All the stuff that, that we're tempted to live for, the, the job, the, uh, the money, the, the status, the getting married and having kids. like None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but it's not our purpose. It's not what our life is about. It's all going to fade away. It's all a vapor. As Christians, we're called to center our lives around the mission of God, to lay everything down for the sake of knowing Jesus and making Him known amongst all peoples in all nations. And I mean, like we were reminded on Friday at Secret Church, there are three billion unreached peoples out there, guys. We've got to go to them. We can't just sit here. And I'll tell you what, if we don't have people that get raised up from here to go, then I'll go if that's what it takes. I'll leave and I'll go. And I'm still, and I, and I want all of us, myself, I want Thomas to do this, I want Chad, I want Doug, I want all of us to do this on a regular basis and be praying, sincerely, God, are you calling me to go? Because I'll go. And I want us to be willing to, if the answer is yes, if God's telling us, I want us to be willing to put our yes on the table and to go. My prayer is that Pillar DC will be a sending center where many, many missionaries are sent out to go to the nations where pe many, many peoples are going to hear the gospel because of what has been started here in this place, because disciples are being made, equipped, and then sent out to go to every tribe and tongue and nation. We don't have a reason not to. We have every reason to go. We have nothing to fear. Let's take these last remaining years that God has, however long those may be, and let's pour them out like the Apostle Paul said as a, as a liquid offering before God. Let's spend them in the service of our King, Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to close out in song. Just to kind of summarize where we've been this morning. Jesus was innocent and without sin. The only thing Jesus was guilty of was telling the truth about himself. He's the Son of God, the King of Kings. And he was condemned to die for that testimony. Pilate and the chief priests conspired together to put him to death, but that was no accident or fluke. It was all according to the definite plan of God so that by dying, Jesus could bear the sins of 
all who trust in him. My question for you this morning is, have you trusted in him? Are you trusting in him now? Are you living in subjection to Jesus as your king? Don't leave here without being certain of that fact this morning. Please don't walk out of this room continuing to walk in rebellion of Jesus. Please don't do that. Please don't let this moment pass you by. Please don't do that. There's salvation and no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Oh God, I pray and plead with you right now that I just know there's probably some people sitting in this room who are right now wanting to be apathetic like Pilate. Yeah, yeah, I just want to get out of here and go do my own thing. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to pay attention to this. Oh God, would you please open their eyes? God, would you please open the eyes of those who are trusting in their own works like the chief priests and the scribes who are trusting in their own works for salvation. God, would you... Holy Spirit, convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God, open up the eyes of the blind and grant salvation this morning. Grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. For those in this room and maybe even those who are watching online right now, God, right now where they're sitting, even if they're alone in their living room on the couch, right now, Spirit of God, would you please convict them of their sin? Would you please open their eyes? Would you please cause them to be born again? Would you transform them from the inside out right now? That this would be the beginning of a lifetime of faithfully following you and of spending everlasting life with you in your presence. And God, I pray that you would infuse tremendous confidence and faith into the hearts of your people. God, may you help us just detach from the things of this world. God, break loose our grip on worldly things that are going to pass away on things that take our eyes off of living for your glory and making your glory known among the nations. God, may our lives be centered around that. May we lay everything on the table. May we be willing to leave behind everything. None of you can be my disciple, you said, Jesus, unless he renounces everything that he owns. God, we renounce it all this morning. We lay it down at your feet. We lay it down at your altar. Take our jobs. Take our family. God, take our careers. Take our money. Take our time. Take it all. It's all yours. You do with it as you will, God. Help us loosen our tight grips. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.